The thing that I, I took away the most was how to be efficient with your time. In today's podcast, I had the pleasure of interviewing one of my favorite people within the broader applied microeconomics and health economics community, Mark Anderson. Mark is a professor in the economics department at Montana State, as well as a faculty fellow at the National Bureau of Economic Research. He is also one of the most curious and talented empirical economists I have had the pleasure of knowing uh, in my 15 years as a professional economist. In this, we discuss some of his formative experiences as a young man, uh, as well as a PhD student at the University of Washington, his approach to and his love of economic research and data collection, as well as his latest work with Dan Reese and Kerwin Charles on early 20th century public health interventions and their impact on mortality. I am Scott Cunningham, and this is Mixtape, the podcast. So this is uh, a lot of fun to, to see you. I haven't seen you in a long, long time. This is Mark Anderson. Uh, who uh, I've known for a long time, professor of economics at Montana State. Mark, thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for thanks for having me. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so so I I want to um, start by going back to your your early life, your before an economist. Um, tell me about growing up in Montana and uh, what you what your what you were like as a kid. Yeah, sure. So I grew up in a really small town, Lewistown, Montana. It's in the middle of nowhere. It's 7,000-ish people. The next closest town of any relative size is uh, Great Falls, which is like, I don't know, I don't know what it is now, 50, 60,000 people, but it's 100 miles away. Um, so really in the middle of nowhere, but in this really pretty valley surrounded by mountains and you know, grew up outside playing sports, mountain biking. But your dad, what did, what did your dad and mom do? Why did y'all live there? Uh, so they're both, they're both retired, but my mom was a kindergarten teacher and my dad was a dentist. He's and a dentist. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just a pretty, pretty chill, but pretty fun place to, to grow up. Um, you know, every, everyone knows each other, which is a good thing and a bad thing. And, um, you know, I think the, you know, you see like the, uh, uh, what was that? What was like the Texas high school football show, the Friday night Life yeah, Friday thing night or whatever, night. like where, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it's kind of felt, I watched that, it feels a little similar, you know, the town sort of descends on, you know, high school sporting events, because that's really the only, only big events going on, and, you know, so, low-key, but, but a cool place to grow up. You, you grew up playing a lot of football. Yeah, you kind of play every sport growing up in, <laughs> in Lewistown, Montana, and football, football being one of them, so it, all the people who play sports are kind of these, uh, you know, Ironman athletes where they play a sport every single season. And if you play football, you, you don't really get much time off. You're on offense, you're on defense, you're on special teams. So yeah, I did, I did, did play football growing up. But you were like a national superstar, right? Like you were like one of the best football <laughs> yeah. players in the whole country. I, uh, I mean, it's hard to say when you're in high school, if you don't play, you know, you don't play against other people from, you know, Texas and California, the big schools. But um, yeah, I, I was a, a high school football All-American um, from Lewistown, Montana. Yes. Yeah, I really <laughs> appreciated the first time we met when you shook my hand that you didn't crush it. I could tell that you were <laughs> had trained yourself not to crush a, a normal person's uh, bones with their bare hand. How did you get into economics? Uh, really, in a roundabout way. Um, I, I took some uh, math classes in college and fell in love with that right away. So I, I you know, I, I had a few majors that I declared initially that I, I, you know, wasn't really interested in. So after taking some math classes, I, I got a little obsessed with math and thought, okay, I'll get a degree in math and I'll go to grad school for mathematics. And uh, my old man at some point, who was a at the time, he, you know, he really got into as a hobby Austrian economics. So I'd come home, you know, and he'd be like reading human action. What is this? <laughs> What's this nonsense this guy's reading? And so, and so he's, he's, you should take an economics class. And uh, so I, I did and learned pretty quickly that 
economics wasn't Austrian economics, although, although you know, I, I liked that at the time. And uh, I took a few econ classes and I, I was finishing up my math degree. So I was like, I'll stay an extra semester and I'll get an, an econ degree. And then, and then pretty soon, um, pretty soon I, I, I switched from wanting to get, go get a, a PhD in math to a, a PhD in econ, which was a good choice because it turns out I kind of suck at math. <laughs> so you were a double major math econ or you were a math major? Yeah, yeah. I got I got I got two undergrad degrees, one in math and 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 one in economics, and then went uh went straight from undergrad and econ to, to get a PhD in economics at, at yeah. University of Washington. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who did you work with at UW? So I had I had sort of a uh quite the mix on my committee. So I had uh Klaus Portner was my chair, he's a development economist. So this is what happens when you go to University of Washington, you want to do applied micro. There's not a ton of folks doing applied micro there. So my chair was Klaus Portner. He does development econ. And then I had Shelly Lundberg on my committee. She's a labor economist. And I had uh, Lan Shi on my committee and she does public. And then I had uh, Joram Barzell on my committee and he's a, a, you know, a, a property rights guy. Um, mm. So it was, but that made it really fun too. You know, I, I, I had a lot of different perspectives and had a lot of interesting conversations. And I think more so than if I would have just had a committee full of health economists. Yeah, know. sure. Sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you've got like, uh, I mean, with like Shelly Lundberg, you've got somebody that's like thinking real deep about bargaining and the family and uh, kind of linked you into that Becker tradition, but clearly like mm -hmm. an original thinker. I mean, what, what do you feel like you learned from, from her? Uh, I mean, the thing that I, I took away the most was how to be efficient with your time. I mean, mm. I think that that is something that I initially struggled with and going and meeting with her was like this great template for how to sort of manage my, manage my life because she was, you know, it was boom, boom, boom. You covered the topics you wanted to cover and it was really efficient. And I always really appreciated that. It, mm. it, uh, and it was something that really stuck with, it still sticks with me to this day when I'm, when I'm meeting with people or, uh, you know, trying to organize my day, I, I really try to, I may, I'll make a little like to-do list at the, at the start of my day. Here's what I'm going to do. I got I have little boxes I need to check. I got to check those boxes, you know? Yeah. So it was, it was very much observing how she worked and, and trying to translate, translate that mm. over to, um, you know, to how I wanted to work. Oh, that's interesting. So you, you always feel like you were like that. You always feel like you sort of would watch what other people see more senior did and kind of try to sort of solve the, like what they were doing. Is that come naturally? Yeah. Definitely. I mean, I don't, I don't think I was ever <laughs> I was smart enough to figure out anything on my own. Uh -huh. So trying to uh, observe what, you know, others have done and try to emulate that uh, yeah. works really well. And, and even for, you know, I remember sitting down to write my first paper yeah. and thought, I don't know how to do this. <laughs> yeah. 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 What the hell am I doing? I don't know how to write a paper. So I thought, all right, just pause, hold on for a second. Let's find papers that are related ish to what I want to write and use those as a template. And I remember writing my first paper, I would have, I'd print out papers and I'd get, in, get on a big table and like spread them out in front of me. Like, all right, I'm going to write an introduction. And I would read an intro, read an intro. And, you know, I'd go across like this sort of half circle around me of intros of these really great papers that published well and were, you know, and I would say, okay, I just read five intros. Now I'm going to try to, you know, they're not on my topic, but now I'm going to try to write on my topic, but use that sort of template that those papers have set forth in their introduction. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to do my intro that way. And then I do the same thing with the data section or background section. So I always tried to, always tried to, you know, I didn't want to reinvent the wheel because I knew I couldn't. Right. <laughs> you know, right, so. right, right. <laughs> you know, it's funny, like we came out the same year, I think, or like approximately like 06 or 07. No, no, you're you're older than me. Don't don't make me older than I, I am. When did you come out? Oh nine, ten, two thousand eleven. Oh my gosh, that yeah, they, you've done so much more than me in a <laughs> shorter time. Uh, I remember thinking um, that you sort of reminded me of like people at that time that applied my. It was like in my mind. It was like applied micro was sort of this like its own field. Um, Whereas when I was in graduate school coming from Georgia, applied micro was not a field inside the worldview of University of Georgia because we had field courses that were that were like theory. So it was like public, mm -hmm. IO, labor. But 
it's like, it seemed like you were part of a group of people that were really like visible to me early on that would like, that thought about empirical problems a certain way. And that if you thought about empirical problems a certain way, it, it sort of brought you into this applied micro, which was health, labor, public development, but really it was kind of like reduced form causal inference. Mm-hmm. It seemed like you, you, from the very beginning, you thought in terms of natural experiments and things like that. Is that, is that, is that fair? Yeah, for sure. And, and it was something that I just sort of stumbled into it, you know, especially going to University of Washington, where, you know, my, my first year of coursework, I'm doing micro theory and taking classes from, you know, contract theorists, and then, uh, you know, a lot of emphasis on, on, on macro. And I liked the, I liked the, uh, I liked the math that was involved with the macro, sort of that engineering style. Yeah. Like churn it out, you know, not not really abstract, like dynamic systems, differential equations, stuff like that. Like, I love that type of math, but I I, I could never make the link between the math and the econ, and just I didn't like it. It just didn't right. feel good to me. Yeah. Um, and and so while I was pretty good at those classes, I I knew pretty quickly that I now nah, that wasn't for me. And then the econometrics was taught. The first year econometrics series was was um, taught by you know these time series macro folks. And you know, I really didn't know what to think of that. And then it came time to take some field courses. So I just started reading papers. And I, as soon as I started you know, finding some papers that were taking this causal inference approach, I was like, oh, this is kind of how I think about the world. This is, mm-hmm. you know, this is sort of the path I think I want to go. And, and as soon as I started down that path, I was like, oh, yeah, you know, for sure, this is what I want to do. This is, this is my comparative advantage. It would be. You know, number one, I find it the most interesting way to approach research questions. But number two, I think I'd be making a big mistake if I did something else. But, you know, the other thing that's different about you, well, I don't know if it's different about you, but for some reason it feels more salient with you is like you also are someone that kind of like goes all in on a particular research agenda over many topics like cannabis. Whereas like I feel like a lot of people in applied micro might kind of like jump around. It's like this, 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 and then and almost kind of like, because causal inference is the game, they like look mm-hmm. for natural experiments. You clearly think in terms of identification and applied econometrics, but you stuck with, you know, legal, um, the legalization of, I don't know if a lot of people reading this, hearing this will know this, but you were like an early mover in, in, uh, medical marijuana reform. And I, I don't think I had seen anybody before you that had done it, definitely not done it, like just hammered it early, early on. Is that, is that correct? You were sort of the, one of the I first think, people. Yeah. I think, I think our paper that my uh, legalization and traffic fatalities and alcohol consumption paper in the yep. journal of law and econ uh-huh. that I, I wrote with uh, Dan Reason, Ben Hansen. I, I mean, Dan and I just did a, a lit review for Journal of Economic Literature, and, and that was really the first paper that we could. That's what find. I thought. So I, I you know, I, 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 I heard though think that was really. I think that was really the first one. Chris Cornwell told me at the University of Georgia. He said, "Man, we just interviewed this guy. That was my advisor." He said, "We just interviewed this mm-hmm. guy, and he had been. Um, he was talking about you, and he was like, he went and was buying." Uh, High Times magazine on eBay to get every one of them so they can reconstruct a price series. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. It was that was uh, that was my first uh, like attempt at you know really building a. a, I mean that is so unbelievably creative. It was so neat. It was a blast. Um, You know, I, I knew that I wanted to create this state by year marijuana price data set for about a 30 year period. And every issue that comes out, there's this section called the, I think it's the trans high market quotations. They make it sound, they make it sound really technical. (laughs) Yeah. Right. (laughs) And, and in it, you know, it's, it's the readers of the magazine. And for those of people who don't know what high times magazine is, it's like a sports illustrated for for marijuana (laughs) smokers. And it's, I mean, it's awesome. And, and, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they have this page or two at the at the back of the of the magazine where readers, you know, the, in the eighties and nineties, they were mailing in uh, 
information on their purchases. So oh they tell gosh. you, they'd say, you know, here's when I purchased, it, uh, made this purchase. Here's where I purchased it. So you know, the, you knew the exact location. Uh, here's the strain. So I remember buying books on marijuana strains. So I could yeah. code up every strain that was listed as either high quality, mid grade or swag. And, you know, here's the price that I paid. And so we, we created this price per ounce measure. Right. By quality. And, but is that in the to, journal of law and economics paper? Cause I, yeah, can't yeah. Remember. So that price, that price, that... that price analysis actually, actually, um, and I, and I completely correct Peltzman handled it and I completely, I'm really glad that he handled it because he really pushes on it. Like, well, we can get at some of these questions with this price series that we've been constructing. So let's just in the revisions, let's throw this price analysis in there. Mm. And, uh, you know, it was great, but it took a lot. I mean, it took a, a year to put that data set together because we were, I was purchasing, you know, you, you don't, you can't just 30 years worth of magazines. It's hard to find. So yeah, I, yeah, I was yeah. going on eBay. I found one guy's old collection. He, he had like a 10 years worth. So I was really able to, to, to you know, I was pretty happy when I, I found someone selling their entire high times collection and it came in this nicely wrapped box. It was just great. And he had his, he had like his Bob Marley cover ones and those plastic sleeves that you put like expensive comic books in, you know, they're in mint condition. So, yeah. So it was super fun. And, and at the oh, end of the man. day, I had, I had tons of, I have, I still in my office have a whole shelf full of high times magazines and you, took a while to transcribe those records in by hand. But at the end of the day, I, you know, I, I still think that's the best price panel that anyone's used for, for looking at um, the effects of legalization. That's incredible. You know, that's, that's like, uh, that's the stuff they, they don't teach you in econometrics. For sure. For sure. You know, and that the, the shoe leather, it's like the non-cognitive skill of being yeah, an yeah, economist. Yeah. For sure. For sure. What is that? Sure. Why are you like that? Why'd you think to do that? Some people wouldn't have thought, I mean, back then, you know, I mean, maybe today, but, but like, that's like, you know, today the equivalent is like scraping something, but that's like, yeah, you're yeah. like getting into the, you're just like, you're doing more like rummaging through the world to find exactly what you're looking for. Why are you like that? I mean, it's fun. It just feels like it's, I mean, it feels like it's real research when you're, you know, going to the library and finding old books and trying to transcribe data in, you know, it's not, there's, there's just something that's really satisfying about that process that you don't get if you're just downloading some publicly available data set, which I, which I, you know, yeah. done on many projects for sure, you know, but, uh, you know, the, seeing the, the fruits of your labor when you do some real data collection is, it's fun. It, it's, 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 um, it's a grind and, and it makes it more of a grind too. You know, yeah. I like that. I like that aspect of it. I like yeah. the, the grind of it. I love I love uh, starting on a data collection project and seeing that it's like, this might take me a few years mm. and fast forward a few years and you've put it together. That's a good, that's a pretty good feeling. So you love collecting data. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Mm. It's a kick. It's a kick. So it, this, this helps me understand maybe a little bit better, but I would love to hear more about it, about your transition into economic history. Is there some connections with what you're saying? Because you're working with, because a lot, at least one of the papers I'd love to hear more about, uh, you had to go back and kind of really dig into the weeds on an old, uh, a famous paper's mm -hmm. data set. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So the, the you know, I, I do not see myself moving away from, I definitely consider myself a health economist who's doing research in economic history. And I do not see myself at least anytime soon going back to researching contemporary health related issues at the rate at which I was, I find mm. this to be much more satisfying and much more interesting um, space within which to conduct research. Mm. Uh, but I started the process, I mean, five years before the first publication, you know, that, that came out um, within this, larger research agenda because it just took so long to build the, to build the damn data sets. Well, what, so, what, what, so take us back to the beginning of that. What, what happened? Well, so I, I was, uh, I was reading, um, I was reading some papers by Paul Rohde, who's this incredible economic historian at university of Michigan on, you know, I was interested in this area because I was a health economist and I was interested in public health interventions. And so I, I had some interest in uh, milk supply related interventions and it, they did not start out as these historical interests, but you know, you follow the balancing ball, you read a paper here, you read a paper there. 
And, and pretty soon I was reading his, this, this series of papers uh, by Rodi and Olmsted, all Rodi and Alan Olmsted, uh, in the Journal of Economic History on these, this federal campaign to eradicate bovine tuberculosis. Mm. So cows get TB, they pass it on through their own pasteurized milk to kids, and it, and, you know, it can be very oh, deadly. Wow. And, and I was just, I was, for whatever reason, I was just fascinated by these papers. I thought they were the coolest thing. And, uh, but they were very descriptive, you know, which was, was great. I think it would have taken away from the papers if they had spent a lot of time on, on data analysis. And, but I thought at the time, I thought, you know, it'd be really cool to really bring the tools of causal inference to this very particular space and test these hypotheses. Mm. And so I started looking into, well, what would that entail? Um, it turns out, uh, I realized pretty quickly, that's gonna entail a lot of <laughs> data transcription efforts. And uh, so we, I started in on it, hiring some RAs, doing a lot of the work myself. Real quick, what, what were you transcribing? Can you tell me the very- Mortality way? records, sorry, yeah, yeah. The mortality sorry. records Morta from what? Mortality vital statistics? Yeah, so uh, vital statistics, mortality records, and you know, fast forward, eight, nine years, a number of people have transcribed these records, but at the time there were not a whole lot of papers that were published using these data. And if they were published using these data, it was small sample, you know, it was, you know, we transcribed records for every three years from a sample of 20 cities, you know? Yeah. Because the, the data collection process was pretty onerous. And so we just went all in. So let's just transcribe every city level mortality count by cause, by race, by gender, by age that exists for a 20 plus year period. And you know, this ended up being for five, 600 cities. So you start multiplying those numbers, <laughs> you, get, you get a real big data set. Um, How do you guard it took, against- It took a long time. So when you're doing this by hand, you know, the, the thing that you worry about, and you're probably tell me about this is just coding errors, just mm -hmm. you know, errors of, of inputting in. Um, what have you noticed about ways in which mistakes can get inputted into, you know, when you're doing this kind of essential, essential type of, type of data collection, mm. what are ways that, what are the most common ways mistakes get coded in or incorporated? Yeah. I mean, it's, so I, so I've read, so there's, there's actually been some folks who have researched this and I, I do not remember where these publications, what field these publications come out in, but if you're just having RAs transcribing records, you can expect a, an error rate of about, I think it's something like one to 3%, you know, mm -hmm. just random, I flubbed the keyboard type of type of errors. Oh, okay. Um, and so it's, you know, for me, um, because I, I just get really particular about these things, I spot check my, my RAs. I've definitely fired RAs <laughs> mm. because the spot checking doesn't check out. Um, but I also like to have, uh, you know, before I really settled on some of these RAs who were just tremendous and, and hired them for years, um, you know, I would have RAs, you know, two different RAs transcribing the same thing. So then I can merge right. them and see where, you know, the, the errors are at. Um, uh, you know, so I, I think just being really careful with who you're hiring, really careful with checking the work. Certainly there's going to be some errors, but hopefully that's just. So noise. it's like it's just one principle. of the ways that errors can happen is just like the the degrees of separation of rely of like to you know of like of you and the data collection like the hiring mm -hmm. of a, it's like a principal agency kind of issue can yeah yeah for sure. The error. for sure right for sure. right for sure right yeah so so this this you said you said we um i wanted to to before we get any further it seems like one of the things that that has been a real key part of your productivity is, is a partnership with Dan Reese. Mm -hmm. How, how, how is that? How did, what's the origin of that, that relationship and why does it work so well? We met when I was on the job market. So I, I interviewed at uh, UC Denver where he was at at the time. And we started talking about marijuana related research. Yeah. Cause he's and, in, he's in Denver. It's an early, it's like they, they yeah, have yeah. probably, early medical marijuana reform? They did. They did. They were one of the earlier states with really loose supply side restrictions. So it was one of those places where it was really visible, you know, a dispensary on every street corner. Got it. So we, we jumped into that, that area of research. And then, um, you know, and then we just, we just migrated our health related interests over to this, this, to this historical context. And uh, so it's been Dan Rees, Crow and Charles and I 
on all of these historical related papers. And it is, it's just the most fun I've ever had <laughs> doing yeah, research. We awesome. all, we all have our comparative advantage. We all have this, this, you know, mutual interest in these topics and we can, you know, we can uh, sit down over, over beers and it, we can, we can talk about this stuff for, for days. It's just, it's just fun. Well, so there's this one paper. So this one paper of yours in the, is the paper in the JP that recently came out with Kerwin and Dan. Is this the one that is, has an interaction with David Cutler's work or is that a different one? No, that's a, that's a different one. The one in the JP is on um, occupational licensing. And we look at the occupational licensing of midwives at the turn of the 20th century and the effects okay. on death during childbirth. Uh, the paper you're referring to, uh, is forthcoming or recently came out in um, AEJ Applied. Oh, okay, okay, okay. So what? So so you're you're working on these topics, and it's like it's clearly that it's these public health intervention. How would I describe these topics? It's like because the midwife one is not what I was thinking then. So it's it like these are these are topics around uh, public health interventions, early twentieth century. Like, is it, is it something, it's like city urban level interventions or how do I think about these things? Yeah. So, I mean, our, our, our general area of interest has been on the effectiveness of public health related interventions and the uh, urban mortality transition. So this profound drop in mortality that was happening very much in urban places at the turn mm. of the 20th century and conventional wisdom uh, you know, has, has been that these public health efforts really drove this transition. And so we've been spending most of our efforts just testing that hypothesis. Huh. Um, and, 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 you know, it, it, the public health related interventions we've focused on have been uh, primarily water, milk, and, and to some extent, sewage related. Huh. Huh. So, so give me an example of like the most, the most abnormal decline in mortality, like what's the big, what's the big one of what age group or what race or. So the, so this trend, the, the, this urban mortality transition is very much driven by infant mortality and mortality due to infectious diseases. So Uh if you look at infant and child mortality. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's plummeting during this time period and and infectious diseases, you know, think of like the flu TB typhoid is another big one. These are all. So what's a theory. Tell me, tell me a theory. And tell me a, a hypothesis from that theory and tell me how you tested it. Well, so there, there's all of these hypotheses that have been set forth regarding what's driven the transition or what's contributed to the transition. I mean, you have everything from the onset of modern economic growth to you know, herd immunity to these things that are really hard to test. Right. Because there just is not a, a great natural experiment available to test right. them. Right. But then you also have the public health hypothesis. Yeah. And that is one that lends itself to causal inference. That's one where you can observe, you know, this city doing implementing this intervention in this year versus this city that didn't. And, and you know, we can bring our tools of causal inference into this into this venue and, and, and test the public health uh, hypothesis. And, and yeah. so that's what we've been. That's what we've been doing. So, so like what, like, so is this the AEJ one about the, the, I mean, yeah. So this is, so, so the, this, you know, this started out as in this, this very much started out as milk related interests. And there's this famous paper by Cutler and Miller that looks at water filtration and they attribute something like half of the infant mortality decline due to water filtration. What's water? Cities run. So cities are installing these massive water filtration plants. These, this is just like cleaning the water. This is like cleaning the water supply. Yeah, putting what like putting fluoride in it or something or no no. So fluoride fluoride comes much later. Um, you think of like these slow sand filters. These were things that places like Pittsburgh installed. So you're oh. literally using sand to filter out filter out the pathogens. Oh. And uh, these projects took years and years to build. I mean, they're oh. massive massive um, public health undertakings. Okay, and and so that, know, like when this when this particular type of facility is going to come online exactly yeah this exactly. is very much like john snow kind of like uh yeah yeah hot street pump stuff okay keep going totally totally so you know so there's this there's this famous paper that looks at water filtration and we started out you know i had these milk 
related interests. And so there's some milk related interventions going on at this time, particularly, particularly this, these mandates at the city level that um, cows have to be tested for, for bovine tuberculosis and the setting of bacteriological standards for the milk supply. So, which, which often um, caused farmers to just go ahead and pasteurize their milk because these limits were set so high. A lot of people think that, oh, cities, cities were passing these pasteurization, uh, uh, mandatory pasteurization laws, which some were, but a lot were setting these really strict bacteriological standards that just in practice looked like pasteurization because that was just the way that you know, dairy farmers met the limit was just to pasteurize their supply. So, so my, our primary interest was, you know, we can bring some omitted public health interventions to the, to the table and, and see if we control for these, you know, these efforts, that, see what happens, you know, see what happens to the filtration estimate or, or uh, you know, do these milk related interventions explain, you know, some of the rest of the, of the decline in infant mortality, for example, do they help explain the decline in TB related mortality, diarrheal related mortality, et cetera. Um, and so that's where we started. And then this, this project grew when I was getting water filtration effect sizes that were there, but were really, really small relative to what others had, had found. And so then our project sort of morphed into this, well, maybe water filtration, while it mattered, didn't matter as much as we thought it did. Mm, mm, mm. How big? How big is the... So what's, in, what's the estimates that you were thinking you would find and what is the estimates that you sort of became more convinced by? Uh, I mean, we were getting, I mean, our effect size is around the nine, 10, 11%. I was, you know, we were expecting things three, four times higher than that. Um, huh, huh. So, so what has been the response of like, I guess there's, there's different audiences, right? It's like medical epidemiology, economic history, public health writers, who, who, who engages with you on this kinds of writing? What has been their response? Uh, for us, it's been mostly economists who are interested in the demographic transition, which has made it really fun. Um, but boy, we've had, you know, I think priors were pretty strong that mm. public health, water filtration, was what drove this infant mortality decline. And so, uh, you know, I think folks were pretty interested in, in our estimates because we were suggesting that while they mattered, they didn't matter as much as, as we thought. Yeah, for sure. So now, how, so now is there's this, is it, is it fair to say that prior to this, it was almost like settled conventional wisdom that it was water and now it's a puzzle? Feels that that, the mortality yeah. decline is more of a puzzle. Yeah, it feels that way. And I, I think it's, it's one of these things that at the end of the day, it was a whole lot of things mattered maybe a little bit. <laughs> yeah, know? yeah, yeah. Right. There right. wasn't this one silver bullet that drove the, drove the transition. Well, what, what, have you, what have you learned from this whole experience? So I think, so that we're, we've been working on this, the project we're working on right now, I think it has helped me think about this a little bit more carefully. So most economic historians interested in the public health determinants of the mortality transition have been focusing on the post-1900 period, generally starting in 1900, because that's when these vital stat data are available. And while it, you know, while it can be a pain and take a long time to transcribe these things, they do exist in, in you know, PDF format that you can, down, you can download the historical documents and then you know, transcribe them. But they start in 1900. That mortality transition was well underway by the time you get mm. to 1900. So you're, you're trying to find these effects in the middle of this super steep downward trend. Right. And so we spent, uh, and with the help of my amazing co-author um, who's joined our, our, our research team, uh, Michael McGilligott, who's at University of Chicago getting his PhD at the Harris School right now. Um, he was one of my students at Montana State. Oh man, a number of years ago, I, I came to him and I said, look, I really want to push this data set pre-1900. I want to take our city level panel and, and these data don't exist in one source. You're the guy that's going to do it. And so, you know, go to town. 
And a couple years later, and visits to the National Library of Medicine archives, you know, a number of, of uh, dozens of interlibrary loan documents being sent to Montana State from around, <laughs> around the country, he put together, he pieced together this city level mortality series from individual city and state public health reports that allows us to go back to 1870s, 1880s, when the transition is just getting underway. And so I think one of the, my big takeaways from this is that I think people have been looking in the wrong place. You know, I think we've been looking in this post 1900 period where if we had the data available to us, oh, lack of data. Pre 1900. The availability of the data has kind of driven some of the questions. I, I mean, I think so. You, you know, we're, we're, we just finished up this paper that we look at the hiring of city level milk inspectors. And we find that these guys matter for, for uh, waterborne mortality. We're finding that if you hired a city level milk inspector who went around and inspected the milk supply and enforced these standards, that waterborne mortality fell about 10 to 11%. And this intervention seems, it's not, it, it seems small relative to some of these post 1900 water related interventions. You build a water filtration plant that's just huge and it takes years, right? That feels massive. You know, you, you hire some, some guy to run your, milk department and inspect the milk supply, well, that certainly could matter. It didn't, doesn't feel as big, but we're finding effect sizes. And, and I'm just wondering that uh, effect sizes that are you know similar to some of these post-1900 yeah. interventions. And I'm just wondering if we've just been looking in the wrong place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wow. But the, it does, I can tell, I can tell from the, from your, uh, I can tell how happy this, the, the, how much you are enjoying, enjoying this this new research and it seems yeah really, it's, really it's, it's super fun it's super fun wow um uh one one more question and then i wanted to ask about this class that you're teaching with dan yeah, sure. or uh our my mixtape sessions platform so so just kind of conclude you know when i when you look back on your on your your life uh you know is a is a you know however you want to answer this question what would you say have so far to this date been you know the most impactful events that you think have really kind of shaped who you are and who you continue to be um probably i'd say probably two or three things uh one uh having an old man who really pushed me and taught me self-discipline like big time that for sure without that i i wouldn't have done any of this stuff. So, uh, you know, he, he, he pushed me pretty hard and I, I'm really grateful for that. So that, that for sure. Um, two, uh, blowing my knees out and not being able to play college football. I think had that not happened, uh, I would have not become obsessed with math and then in turn econ. So I think that was, uh, you know, in hindsight, I was not obsessed with school. I was not obsessed with academia. I was very obsessed with that endeavor. And when that was taken away, I was like, boy, I got to find something else or, or it's going to be a problem. And so I, I, I dove into, dove into academia and, and math in particular, and then, and then, and then econ. So for sure that, and, uh, and then, uh, finding these co-authors who I'm working with today, yeah. uh, boy, it just makes it fun. I mean, I, I get so excited to talk to these guys about research. I get so excited to meet up with them in person. And uh, you know, I hope I hope we can keep this. I hope we can keep this going for sure because it's, yeah. it's going to last. There's this exercise that uh, I do as part of this like meditation app um, that I use, and and this guy he kind of walks you through exercises, and he says. He'll, he'll say, I want you to imagine you, you, you like close your eyes and you like ascend, you like sort of like float and like float into the air and you go into space and you like circle earth and you come back down and, and it's like the future and you're at your house and it's like, you know, you see your 80 year old self and you can like go up to him and, and you can go talk. He's already lived everything that you have uh, experienced so like he already kind of knows what happens, the stuff that you're struggling with. He does, you, you know, you don't know what's going to happen. He knows what's going to happen. And um, you go and ask him 
and and the exercise says, uh, you know, ask him what it is that you need, what it is that you think that he, what it is that he thinks you would really, would really help you know right now about this thing. And I was kind of curious, like, if your old self, so this was when you were at Stanford, right? I didn't mention this, but this is when you were yeah. this was a football player at Stanford. So if, if he came or that, or if he came to you now, what do you think you would tell him that would, that would be relevant for, you know, what, where he was then? Well, that's a good question. Um, I, <laughs> I probably, uh, I'd probably tell him to, uh, I'd probably tell him to listen to his trainers Hire a better uh, weight training coach. Don't ruin, <laughs> don't ruin your knees, and let's see where you can go with this. Because <laughs> so you can get into academia when you're thirty. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Um, uh, well, so tell me about this class. So uh, that you and Dan are going to be teaching for the for the for the mixtape sessions. People, it's called doing applied research. What what is this yeah. going to be like? Yeah, so it's we're design we're thinking about this as as a practical guide for graduate students, especially job market candidates in econ or other social sciences, and then early career economists and other social scientists. So those folks who are you know in these tenure track positions and, and trying to figure out how to go about things. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of it is so we're, we're going to try to break it up. We're going to you know start out with. How do you get started in the research process? You know, just sort of the mechanics of sitting down and which ideas do I work on? Where do I spend my effort? Uh, you know, when do I call it quits on a project? Right. And so start with that, which, which for me, you know, I think a lot of, a lot of these individual components in the workshop are based on what I wish I would have known yeah. when I was, a graduate student, what I wish folks would have told me, um, because I think a lot of I just sort of learn via trial and error, learning by doing on my own, and I don't think I always got there in the most efficient manner. So yeah. I, I hope it's helpful in that regard. Um, and, and just how to manage multiple projects. How do you know which paper should be your job market paper? Those types of things. And then the next section is we're. we're going to have it be this um, guide to writing a paper so and, and break it down into the chunks of your empirical paper and, and when we're talking about these papers it's going to be this style of paper that that we write so right. not just for economists but for anyone interested in causal inference and while yeah. we won't spend time on the nuts and bolts of causal inference right we're going to be spending the class on how do you write a paper that is of this style Right. And we're going to go down, you know, we're going to start with the introduction and work our way down from the literature view to the, how do you describe your, your data to, you know, how do you conclude and, right. and what do you conclude? What do you say? And, uh, and then after that, we'll, we'll we, we're, we're going to close out with a, a third section of the paper that talks about sort of just sort of other things, maybe a little uh, miscellaneous type of section where we, um, you know, what can you get out of conferences and seminars? Uh, how do you handle the refereeing process? You get your first few sets of referee reports. I remember getting my first set of referee reports and being like, what the hell do I do with these, right. <laughs> these things? Right. Uh, so we're hoping to offer some guidance there. And we're both editors at journals. So we're going to have a, a little session where we call ask the editor, uh, you know, so ask us, you know, um, any questions you might, you might think would be helpful for your sort of, uh, publication process and we'll, we'll give you our insight um so so yeah we're thinking about breaking it into sort of those three sections getting started the actual paper and then just some other stuff are, are you do you feel like this is the hidden curriculum for like being a professor like this kind of class you're talking about it's like it's it's a major part it seems like it's a major part of the production of science that uh scientific literature and the scientific <laughs> process that actually is crucial and because people don't get jobs and then they mm -hmm. don't get satisfying, you know, things aren't as satisfying as, you know, intellectually. And then they don't get into publish. It's like, 
it seems like it's really a critical part, but we don't really get it, at least not in econ. Is that, is that, a, do you think that's true or is it, or is it that totally. it is out there? Or what do you think is going on? I, th I think that's absolutely true. I, I wish that, you know, I, I try to keep, while I'm putting these, these lectures together, I, I keep in the back of my head, you know, what do I wish I would have known? And that's, that's guiding this whole process. And I, I you know, I, I've never come across anything yeah. like this. So I, I'm, I'm really hoping that it'll be, that it'll be really helpful. Yeah. Uh, and we're trying to set it up where we have a lot of interaction with the audience members. We want to have a lot of time for Q and a, yeah. we, you know, I, I, um, I was on a podcast. Oh, maybe, maybe this fall, this econ pro sem, um, podcast that's, um, put together by a few folks and, uh, most of the, most of the folks on the, who listen to this podcast are, uh, job market candidates. Mm. And I was just on there talking about the process of publishing a journal article while you're a grad student, you know, so it's sort of a, a mini topic that would be within this, within this lecture. Mm. And this was another thing that got me thinking about this workshop with the questions that I was getting asked. Yeah. And many of the questions were not geared towards, uh, it, it, you know, should I be using a DD or an RD or it, it was, do I want to write an IV paper? No, it was, it was, how do I know which paper to choose exactly. <laughs> to write on? Right. How do I know which, which question to dive deep into? And, and a big one was, when do I call it quits on a project and, and move yeah. on? You know, and, and, yeah. and so I was getting all of these questions when I thought I was going to be getting more, you know, natural experiment oriented right. related questions. And I got none of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was all just the practical aspect of doing research. Yeah. Um, and, and so I, you know, that was, that was motivating as well. Yeah. 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 I know, man, I'm, uh, I, I'm so appreciative that you're doing it. I think it's, um, I'm of the strongest, strongest, strongest opinion that uh, uh, we, we've been thinking the invisible hand is solvent, like optimally uh, uh, designing our, our curriculum, you know? And it's like, and, and I just am of the strong opinion that there's lots of things that a lot of people by sheer luck and uh, learned or already mm -hmm. knew. And it's just a, like a missing conversation or two or, or mm -hmm. something more explicit that could have done it for someone else. Yeah, you know, for, um, for, for sure, for sure. And because, you know, you read these papers, the part of the problem is it's like, I actually kind of feel like when you read articles in economics, it's like an example of selection on the dependent variable because you're only observing the published paper. You're not observing mm -hmm. any of the failures and you're not observing any of the revisions and you're not observing mm -hmm. any of the process. Tons of stuff gets taken out of the paper that you absolutely had to do at the beginning Yep. And it was crucial that you do it at the beginning for reasons that may, there may need no trace of it anymore. Yeah, for sure. We, 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 we have a section that we're going to add to this course, including this course that's, that's on robustness checks. Like right. how many do I include? Yep. How, yeah, yeah, yeah. how bloated should my appendix be? Right. <laughs> you know? right. Uh, and, and those are things that aren't, yeah, especially when you're writing your first paper, boy, that's hard to figure out. And, and, yeah. you know, I, I, so at Montana State, I, I advise, we have a, a master's program where they have to spend a year on a thesis. And so they're writing their first real paper. And, and over the 10 years of, of advising these students, the first thing that I now sit down and talk to them about are these practical aspects of the research process. Mm -hmm. Early on when I wasn't doing that, and you, know, you check in on your students three, four, five months later, and they've made zero progress, and you start to figure out why, it's because they just don't know how to get, don't know how to get started. Right. You know, or they're just they're just drowning in regression results. Like, oh my gosh, I have I have a thousand regressions I've run, and I don't know what you know. And, and so you have to. So I, I find now you cut cut. Let's cut to the chase. Let's talk about how you actually should sit down and get started, yeah. and you're going to save yourself a lot of time. I, I think that this class, in my personal opinion, is for uh, uh, people second, third year and on PhD students of all of the causal inference social sciences, which is essentially everybody. For sure. And then, and then I think it's for the assistant professor too, because it's all, because it's really about, it might as well doing applied research, you know, is, you have that what's one of the things that I think people don't always appreciate until you're on the tenure track is that clock 
does not, it really just doesn't. I mean, you know, there's pauses in the clock, but, but, but when the clock pauses, there's usually oftentimes raising of expectations in equilibrium. And so, you know, at the end of the day, you know, the, the, you have to get those six papers published in a particular place and those places only publish a certain number of them. And so it's like, you know, you, you've got to learn early on all this, the, the soft skills and the non-cognitive aspect, the art of causal inference, really. It seems like that's kind of like what you're doing applied research. It's like, it seems like it's the, the hard facts of publishing are not just about the Gauss-Markov theorem and how you do on your econometrics prelim. Right, for sure, for sure. Right. I mean, I, we've, we've all observed, I, I mean, uh, I've, I've observed close friends and colleagues who, you know, extremely smart, yeah, extremely hardworking, ask interesting questions, write good papers, but they didn't get tenure because they kept working beyond the point where marginal benefit equals marginal cost. Yeah. And hey, hey man, did you get that you get that paper out? Like, you know, you got that R and R. It's been a year. Like, yeah, oh, I'm still still working on. Oh, you gotta get it out. You gotta get it out. <laughs> you know. I think there's a lot of market failure problems. I don't think it's even something that's easily fixed. Like within each, if you think about like what you think about how you get to a department, and then in the department, which is it is in many ways like even though there's a lot of select, even though obviously it's like getting in a department is selection. It's like you know, you picked them and they picked you, right? So in that sense, it's not random. But in the department, there's only a few people that you really have a chance then of matching into mentorship and sponsorship. Mm -hmm. And it's all clouded by chemistry and like by politics and weird things that are unanticipated. And so there's all kinds of noise that you like, we have all these mechanisms to help fix like the conference and presenting and, and interact and the building up of social capital at the conferences. But like, I haven't seen a class like y'all's before. And it feels like, it's like, I think just, you know, being in a place where these are with in a structured environment where this can be taught. I, I do think that this will be, I, I do think that this is going to be really nice. And so I, I'm excited about you doing it. Yeah, I, I am too. I think, I think it's, I hope it's going to be really helpful and, and I think it'll be fun too. You know? I do too. I, yeah, I, I think it'll be fun and, and I'm really excited to do it with Dan. You know, yeah. we have a blast doing things like this together. We're like an old married couple. I'm, <laughs> I'm sure people will be laughing at us bickering at each other half the time, you know, but um, it, I would, there's no other person I'd rather do it with. Yeah, that's great. I love Dan. Uh, well, so it's on mixtape sessions. Um, if you're listening to this, you just Google mixtape sessions. Go to doing applied research. You'll see the link to Mark and uh, Dan's class. Uh, Mark, it's so good to see you as always. It's like uh, you're the pandemic uh, was was tragic, and but then there's all these like um, uh, paper cut tragedies, uh, and not getting to see you at conferences is one of them. So it's nice to see you. Well, ho- hopefully soon we get to we get to do this chat over a beer. Yeah, that's right. That's right. All right, <laughs> I'll talk to you later. All right, thanks, Scott.